When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Emmy Andrews. Emmy is the Executive Director of the Central Oregon Trail Alliance, also known as CODA. The group's mission is to develop, protect, and enhance the Central Oregon mountain bike experience through trail stewardship, advocacy, collaboration, and education. Thanks for joining us, Emmy. Thanks, great to be here. So tell us a bit about CODA. What's the organization's mission and how many members do you have? Thanks. Well, yeah, you set me up pretty well. You said the mission, but I'll say it again. Um, <laughs> CODA's mission is to develop, protect, and enhance the Central Oregon mountain bike experience through trail stewardship, advocacy, collaboration, and education. I We're a nonprofit, and luckily we're a nonprofit that has a good mission statement. And so Mm -hmm. we basically, you know, our mission kind of sets up these four pillars of trail stewardship, which which is the biggest one. What we do at Mm -hmm. the core is build and maintain trails and bike parks, like skills areas. Um, And then, you know, the universe that is around that is really the other three pillars, advocacy, collaboration, and education. So there's there's a lot of advocacy to be done to mm-hmm. land managers and that sort of thing. A lot of tables to sit at is kind of how I like to say it for collaboration to, you know, all the other stakeholders and different groups to interface with them. And then ongoing education of new riders and just, you know, keeping responsible riding and educating about the lands on which we're recreating. And so Coda mm-hmm. takes on all that as well. We do, one of our main funding streams is membership. So we have about 2000 members and they pay a relatively small fee to like help support the trails. And um, yeah, but we know there's more riders out there. So. (laughs) Right. For sure. (laughs) So I noticed in your mission statement, uh, you explicitly include the word mountain bike, but the name of the group, Coda doesn't reference bikes. Is that intentional or strategic for some reason? Yeah, that's that's a great question. It's part of the evolution of CODA. You know, back in the day, we had a mission statement that was more just like about trails. And then in around 2016, our board kind of said, what, what does this mean to us? And, you know, if there was a trail that didn't allow mountain bikes, would we work on it? Would we be mm-hmm the group that maintains it. And we decided, no, that would be outside of our sort of bandwidth and capacity and where we define ourselves. So, so we definitely welcome foot traffic is welcome on all of the trails that we maintain and equestrians Mm -hmm. are welcome on a number of those trails as well, but we don't get, we are not the group that does things like taking care of the wilderness trails. There's a different group um, locally that does that. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing a lot of groups around the country, sort of, some of them are rebranding, some of them are the new groups, and they are trying to pick names that are like more inclusive, I guess. And I didn't know if that was like part of, you know, if you're able to get more grants and and open more doors, because you can say, look, yes, we work on trails, like we're, you know, part of the community, is that play into it? Are you, do you still work with other user groups as CODA or, or are they sort of separate? Well, we're really, I don't know if this is an Oregon thing or what, but we are, there's a very, very collaborative environment here between different stakeholders. So, mm-hmm. and there are a number of sort of coalitions or collaboratives where those groups pretty formally get together and discuss common issues. So like we okay. have the Deschutes Trails Coalition here, we have the Ojico Trails, Trails Coalition. And, you know, that's a place where everyone from like grazing permittees to the logging industry, to the hunters association, to the equestrian groups, like we all get together and discuss issues relevant to trails in the forest. And it's, it's, you know, it's taking some time to like build those coalitions and build trust, but it's working quite well. It's really great. Mm, 
Yeah, that's awesome. Well, also I noticed Coda is organized with chapters. So you're, you're a fairly large organization or, or is it because it's geographically large? Is, what's the thinking behind sort of having chapters within Coda? Um, that's another thing that has maybe been around just for a long time and it was, was a decision of how best to allocate our board's capacity, like back in the day, mm-hmm. but, but it has become like a geographic thing. So, so six of the people on our board or their titles are actually chapter representatives and they're elected to okay. those positions separately and, and the, or like specifically. And then they basically run the operations of their chapters. And, and as we get bigger and as more trails come online, it's actually turned out to be a really good model because then there's like a sense of locality and those communities, mm. some of which are like many of which are smaller communities around central Oregon are driving their own trail future, right? So rather than a larger city like Ben saying, oh, we want this trail in a smaller community, that community is telling, you know, sort of the code of mothership, here's the kinds of trails that we want in our community. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, and you see it, I know, uh, you know, I'm a member of Mountain Bike Atlanta here in Atlanta, Georgia. And yeah, I mean, we're, pretty geographically specific to Atlanta, but at one time, even our group was organized that way where like different neighborhoods had kind of their own, you know, board member or what have you. And yeah, because a lot of these issues are more localized and and you want to be sort of as close to the community as you can be. So tell us when and why CODA got its start. What was the big moment when mountain bikers realized they needed to be organized Yes, so it was a long time ago <laughs> in in 19 around 1992. Oh wow. In the in the late yeah, so actually Coda is 30 years old this year. This is our 30th anniversary oh, that's of, awesome. you know, yeah, having a 501c3. We're pretty psyched to be to have that longevity. So there was a group of folks that were some of the land here is relatively the the understory is very open. There's not a lot of vegetation. We're in a high desert, so there's there. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to kind of ride cross country. And so there were a number of folks that were just getting out on their bikes and going out into the national forest and just riding, you know, deer trails and forest roads and mm-hmm. and kind of started creating these trails. And then through some different relationships, the Forest Service was like, "Hey, you know, you need to." get organized and like advocate for these trails. We need to get these trails on the map in a systematic way and like make sure they're not going through sensitive habitat and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, so Coda was warned to basically, to, to basically have that relationship with the land manager. So how long have you been with Coda and how'd you get involved? I joined Coda's board of directors in 2016. They were just sending out emails saying run for the board of directors. And I really had no knowledge about trail work or anything. I just was at a place in my life where I was like, this could be fun. <laughs> so I so I ran for the board, I got on the board and then just kind of, you know, came up through the ranks. And then when we were having conversations around 2020 of like, we should hire staff because we were all volunteer until mm. then. And we were just, mm-hmm. we were like, we cannot do all the things that we are called upon to do in an all volunteer capacity anymore. So we made a decision to hire an executive director and went through a long process and did make it to the top and got chosen. So the rest is history. Discarded wow, my cool. previous career and said, trails is my new career. So. <laughs> Was there like any overlap? Like, did you have experience that like made you well suited to doing this? Cause yeah, I mean, it's, it's a nonprofit. It's, a lot of stakeholders and things like I, I can imagine that's something that takes some time to like learn and to get good at. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the underappreciated skill for almost any job is actually ability to have good interpersonal relationships. <laughs> mm, yes. so, so hopefully I'm good at that. And I also, in my previous job, I, worked with a lot of federal government clients and and did a lot of NEPA work, the National Environmental Policy Act, which for federal land managers, that's the process that trails have to go through in order to be approved and like screened for environmental concerns. So I had a lot of knowledge of how 
the federal government works and how they go through that environmental screening process. So that that definitely and their just entire planning process. So that has been pretty helpful to to know from the other side. Yeah, for sure. So I imagine there are always like new trail projects and things like that going on um, where where that NEPA knowledge and, and those sorts of things come into play. How many miles of single track does CODA currently support? We currently steward about 500 miles of trail. We're going through, yeah, we're renewing our volunteer services agreement with the Forest Service and have identified a number of trails that sort of no volunteer group is taking care of. So we expect that number to go up to about 600. Yeah. And then we have 150, about 150 miles more in the planning pipeline that, you know, will take years to come to fruition, but but we ultimately see ourselves sitting at, you know, 750 or more. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's, that's gotta be one of the the highest numbers I've heard for any trail group. It's hard to imagine how you can even keep track of that. Uh, There's probably trails that nobody's really been on for years, right? Or, or are people riding all these trails and, and you have a pretty good handle of like what's out there? Yeah, we, we do. And we, we have a pretty good handle on it. We definitely get out and, I mean, it's a very small number of people that work very hard, you know, in the final, especially on our Sawyer team, you know, that go and ride all the trails during the spring meltout and get all the down trees cleared away. And then, you know, we just, we, we have it pretty systematized to sort of make sure that we at least somebody who knows about trail work rides every trail every year and kind of takes wow. a look. We don't get everything done that we'd ideally like to do, <laughs> but we're working on that. Wow. That, yeah, that is, that's super impressive. So tell us about some of these trails that, that CODA helps support. What are some of the more popular ones? Maybe ones that people from outside of Oregon have heard of. Yeah. Well, the Phil's area network is definitely one of the most well-known ones. We, Phil's trailhead is this is right at the edge of town and goes out to a network of like mostly green and blue trails that are really, really popular, really, really friendly for beginner riders, um, okay. families who want to get out. So that's a great network that's really well known. And then what we sort of dub the Winoga network is hmm. kind of our more blue to somewhat black trail system where you have more of your popular sort of like rock and jump flow trails. We've got like Tyler's, Tiddlywinks, Spunner, all of those names are kind of in there and In that system, there's a new trail called Royal Flush that's just about a mile long so far, but it's, you know, it's one of our biggest, like, biggest jumps, biggest berms kind of trails in our system, and it's new as of 2021, so that's a good addition to that system. And then, I mean, one thing about our trail network is, like, it's highly interconnected, so you can put together you know, a hundred mile ride on single track, if that's your jam and, and just kind of go all over without, you know, having to get out on big sections of pavement or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Does that allow for bike packing? Like, could you do multi days? Are there like campgrounds or things kind of out there in the forest that, that people make use of? Yeah, there, there are a few campgrounds, but I'd say most, you know, bike packers would probably just go for dispersed camps. We actually have, the Oregon Timber Trail, which is a, a long bikepacking route that goes through all of Oregon south to north, is uh, runs through the area. There, there's a bit of a one of the best routes for the Oregon Timber Trail would unfortunately be this trail, the Metwin, where there's still it's really built as an equestrian trail and there's a considerable amount of equestrian traffic. So it's not officially routed on that trail because we're trying to reduce conflicts with the equestrian group. But there's mm-hmm. a lot of. Um, it does go through this area and there's a lot of great places to stop along the way and resupply. And yeah, very fun. Cool. Cool. Well, yeah, I've definitely heard of Phil's trails and I always wondered, was there a connection to like Phil's world? It's a different Phil, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a different Phil. Phil (laughs) is, uh, he's getting on in years, but he's like still around town and, uh, taking care of the trail he and his family take care of the trail known as Mrazic. So he's still a big presence in the riding community. And yeah, we have a lot of trails named after 
guys who <laughs> who were the original builders of those trails. So we have like Ben's and Marvin's and Kent's and Tyler's. And so that's, you know, maybe in today's world that that isn't the best way to name all the trails, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, you mentioned that Phil's trails, uh, the, that area is a good spot for like beginning riders, for families. Are there, is there a good mix of trails? It sounds like there is in Bend for kind of riders of all skill levels. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a good mix, but it is definitely like, especially a really good place to get into riding or for people. I had a, a guy tell me once, he's like, people come to Bend to go fast and far, like, a lot of our trails are, you know, pretty fast and flowy and you can you can log big distances because we're not like this trail goes straight up the side of a really steep mountain, you know. So whereas if you're the kind of person who would go on a ride, you know, somewhere that's really known to be very steep and technical and you might go on like a 20 mile ride, you can easily knock out like a 40 mile ride here. So right. it's it's just it's fun in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So not a lot of technical stuff. I mean, is there demand for that, that people in town are like, eh, we need some harder trails or are people pretty satisfied with the current mix of trails? I think like anything that's sort of, you know, a hot topic in mountain biking, there's, there's people that want more like easier trails. There's people that want more harder <laughs> trails. There's, there's, we hear it all, but, um, yes, we just want more trails. That's yeah, right. <laughs> when we look at the inventory, you know, we do think, and just where biking is going and, you know, there's so many more jumping and, you know, doing those mm -hmm. kind of tricks is like so much more normalized in the community. And so we're really looking to try to provide more jump trails, flow trails. Tech is a little harder because it's sort of what the landscape allows in, in a bit more of a way, right. but, you know, ways to provide more skill progression. We have a, we have an amazing resource here called the lair, which is a, just a little hillside that has become like a big jump park and man, that you can follow the lair on Instagram and you will see like 12 year old kids doing backflips every day. And <laughs> it's pretty wow. fascinating. So that's great. And then it's not, Coda doesn't take care of it, but our local ski uh, mountain also has a bike park that's open in the summer that offers a lot of mm. you know, more harder technical and big, big features and that kind of thing. So that's a good resource around here as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's great to hear. So who are some of the key land managers and agencies that Coda works with? It sounds like the Forest Service uh, is, is one of them, or is it is it BLM that has the land uh outside of town the majority of the trails throughout our chapters are is the forest service we have two different okay. um forests that we work on the deschutes national forest and then the otoko national forest so we have the deschutes has three different districts within it and then the otoko is is just one district so we work with all those two forests and the three districts within the one and then we do have our BLM, our local BLM is just one district as well. And we have several different riding areas that are on BLM. Oh, okay. And then we have a couple of different riding areas that are on like city and county. And some of our skills areas as well are on city and county. So, and we have a little bit of state park land. So we're kind of working with all the, all up and down the land manager spectrum, which is good. Yeah. Wow. That's definitely a lot to keep track of, but it also... I mean, that's makes sense why Bend is able to have this tremendous resource because it sounds like you're kind of surrounded by a lot of like federal lands. Is that is that a good way to put it? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of public land around here, which is just amazing resource. You know, it's just wonderful mm -hmm. to be able to get out on those public lands and do all the different kinds of recreation. I mean, most mountain bikers are, you know, skiers in the winter, maybe casual runners, climbers, you know, and all the, all the fact that public land provides for all of that. Yeah, definitely. Well, so Bend is actually, I mean, Bend is a good size city on its own, but do you see a lot of riders coming from out of town to ride in Bend? Is it, is it like a tourism spot or is it more of a, like, you just have a lot of local people who ride there? What's kind of the mix of riders uh, that you see in Bend and some of the areas you support? 
definitely a lot of visitors, out-of-towners, um, probably a lot of those, you know, coming from driving distances, other places in Oregon, Washington, California. But I was playing around on Trail Forks, and they have a little page where you can look at stats just based on the ride logs of the people that are using their platform. And it it was showing like two-thirds out-of-towners and one-third oh, wow. local. Know how? I mean, if they just use cell phones, like I have the same cell phone number I've had most of my life, so it would probably peg <laughs> me as out-of-towner. So I don't right. know exactly how that those stats work, but I, definitely there's a, a big out-of-towner population, and it has really changed the character. Well, maybe not changed the character of town, because people have always been coming to Bend for the Ski Mountain Bachelor, but mm. you know, we really see this year-round tourism, and just you drive around town during the summer months, and it's just cars with bike racks and bikes on the back of them just everywhere. So, Yeah. I mean, does that make it tough as a nonprofit, as a group that's supporting trails, that you're building and maintaining these trails that a lot of people are using, but you don't necessarily have like the volunteer base and the financial stuff. I mean, tourism is great for people who own hotels or, you know, restaurants or things like that. But as a trail group, like, is that challenging for you to have such a, a large contingent of, of riders from out of town? I mean, I think it creates some opportunities as well, because we've definitely seen the transient room tax that is collected locally from from those tourists, we've seen some of the community leaders work to figure out ways to get some of that money back into recreation infrastructure and maintenance, um, oh, you know, recognizing that there's a cycle here that needs to go on. So that's pretty new, but, but I think part of, you know, back to when we were talking about how stakeholders have get together here pretty regularly and talk about these issues, we are seeing um, mechanisms come online to kind of create that feedback loop. It, it would be great we as an organization would like to figure out more how to message to tourists kind of like, Hey, if you ride here, like throw us a few bucks, right. For your, you know, <laughs> right. you would, you'll go out to dinner. You'd pay for that. You're riding the trails, right. like maybe give a little donation, but, but in the absence of that, there are some other mechanisms that, you know, help us with some funding with that, just like grant programs and whatnot. So that's good. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems to be kind of a common issue and it's, it's good that you are sort of talking about how do you take those tourism revenues and sort of put it back in because a lot of the reason people are coming is because of the trails that Coda and other folks are, are helping to build and maintain. And so, yeah, you got to keep that, that resource up and keep improving it so that people will keep coming. Yeah. And it's funny because, It'll, it looks crazy. When you drive up to one of our trailheads, I mean, it looks like such a scene. There's 30, 40, <laughs> 50, 100 cars there, you know, but you get on on the trails and it's still pretty, you won't see anyone for 20, 30 minutes and, and people, and depending on where you are, you could go much, much longer without seeing anyone. <laughs> and like, and, and when you do see people, I think for the most part, there's always exceptions, but Bend is really well known for just people being really nice on the trails. I was, mm. my brother was visiting and we, you know, stopped at like an intersection and talked with these other riders for a little bit. And then as we're leaving, he's like, did you know that guy? And I'm like, no, I just, you know, <laughs> talked to him like he's my friend, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that's a really that's good, awesome. you know, that's an experience I hope visitors have when they come here, right? It's like just people being super nice out on the trails and then just creating that culture of like, that's how you treat people on the trails. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that leads sort of into my next question about the mountain bike community in Bend. Like what, what is a way for people who are maybe from out of town that they could connect with that and kind of experience that? I mean, it sounds like just ride the trails and say hi to somebody and you know, you're, you're one of the crew, but are there, are there like standing group rides or are there businesses that are particularly mountain bike friendly? Well, we have a number of bike shops. I can't even count them all. I don't know. They're in the double digits. Right. And like all of those bike shops, Whoa. super friendly and like great places to get information. Um, and, you know, get hooked up with rental bikes or whatever you need. So definitely stopping in a bike shop is a really good thing to do um, if you need sort of information. I honestly, I had to Google like 
group rides in Bend because I don't really know <laughs> what the group ride scene is, but it does look like there's a number of uh, folks that do that. Especially there's there's often a lot of like women's rides. Women just mm. tend to get together and want community and like create spaces for that, um, which is yeah. great in mountain biking. What was the other thing I was going to say about that? Oh. Oh, Cog Wild, and maybe there's another group now, provides shuttles. They have, like, a really good daily shuttle schedule. So that's that's a cool way to, you know, maybe take some of the uphill out of your ride. (laughs) (laughs) Which can be what you need if you're on vacation and you're, like, riding day after day. So that's a good – and they're a great resource, too. The people are all really friendly and will tell you all about stuff in town and give you ride suggestions and that sort of thing. But, but yeah, it's it's – yeah, I think those are the major ones I would point out. Yeah. What about, I'm sure there's there's lots of good beer being in Oregon. Are there <laughs> any breweries that are like trail adjacent or like ones where mountain bikers tend to hang out? That's a good question. I mean, the classic Ben Day, right? Which I still enjoy every time I do it, even though I've lived here like 15 years, is going for a ride and then going to a brewery and having dinner and having some beers and I mean, you'll find mountain bikers at every brewery there is. There's a few. There aren't really any that are like you come right off the trail and you're at the brewery, but Mm -hmm. there's a number that are kind of on the west side. And we've had a huge growth in like food cart pods as well that have, you know, a little beer garden and food carts. And in the summer, those are kind of my favorite hangouts. It's like because I'm very food focused really. So (laughs) yeah, that's, that's a great part of mountain biking. That's like the other half, the other side of the coin, you know, you ride and then you eat slash drink. So yeah, that sounds really awesome. Run off all those calories and then put them right back on. That's yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what are you, I mean, you mentioned 500 miles of trails, which still I'm trying to wrap my head around that. So what are some of like the under the radar trails that people might want to consider riding? Like what are some hidden gems, maybe some that are like harder to get to or for whatever reason, people just don't ride them that often. Are there any that you would recommend? Oh my gosh. Yes. I've got kind of a list. So settle in for this. So (laughs) Madras, which is like North of Bend about 45 minutes. So the town of Madras has a system called the East Hills that they have just, gone bananas up there um it's on city land and so they've had a little more freedom to do things like wood structures they welcome e-bikes because it is not federal land it's city land so you can ride your e-bike out there so there's just it's got some cross country it's got a lot of sort of like features and skills areas there's a little drop zone there's a good jump trail so that's a really fun one and if you're coming from like the portland area that's a bit closer than coming all the way to bend. Um, so that's a really good one that is an up and comer for sure. And then I really like the Radlands, which is an area it's on County land east of Redmond. And it's just, it just naturally has all these little punchy, like rocky up and overs. And it also mm-hmm. welcomes e-bikes. Although honestly, I would be terrified to ride an e-bike over <laughs> some of those like rock features. Yeah, but, um, yeah. But it's a, it's a small system. It's probably only like 10 miles of trail. But the rock features are really not something that you see on other trails we have. So that's a fun area to go and practice. And then in Prineville, which is east of Bend, there's a, a really new... It's just one trail called Quadruple Bypass. And it's like an out and back. And it's behind these data centers. And it's near the dump. And it's like kind of this weird... <laughs> But it's called the Back 66 because all the trails there are part of the 66 trail system. And But it's on the rim of this canyon that overlooks um, Primeville and the surrounding area. So it's really scenic. And then there are a ton of wood features, like lower, kind of more like skinnies where you're kind of technically riding, you know, navigating the turns of the skinny. And so that one's a really fun one that almost nobody knows about whenever we put a picture of it on like our social media or something. People are like, where's this? <laughs> so that's a good one. And then in the winter, we have a network of fat bike trails. It's currently, it's only nine miles of fat bike trails, but we've been working so hard with the land managers to try to increase the mileage. And there've been a series of, 
complications that have not yet allowed us to do that. But we're really, we have a great team that is committed to grooming those trails. And we've actually started grooming um, some of them wider so that adaptive bikes and ride have opportunities to ride those trails in the winter as well. So that's a fun thing to like have pretty much year round riding. Yeah. That's super cool. I mean, does it get, do you get a lot of snow in town in Bend where like all or most of the trails are are covered or, or are there certain trails that you can ride pretty much year round, even without a fat bike? Yeah. In the, in the deep winter, like January, February, March, there's not a ton of trails that are not under snow. Um, so oh, the wow. fat bike really one of the main ones um and then you can also there's a ton of there's snowmobile clubs that plow you know larger like road-sized corridors but you can ride your fat bike on those as well so you can get up into some interesting areas on those snowmobile routes but but yeah kind of kind of that deep winter it's it's time to go skiing <laughs> <laughs> yeah sounds like you're okay with that yeah yeah i like that but and, and that said, you know, the Madras system, um, some of the systems in Primeville, you know, those, depending on the snow year, those may be riding almost all year. But the Bend trails are are pretty closed down for the main winter months. Interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I haven't visited Bend, um, but from all the pictures and things, I mean, obviously the pictures I'm seeing are from the summer and it just looks, it looks sort of dry and dusty and like, you know, beautiful forests and things like sort of reminds me of Colorado just from looking at it. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm personally surprised that, yeah, you get that much snow that, that you can't actually ride some of the trails in the winter. Yeah. It's interesting. We just went to Colorado on a trip and it was very funny because like our mountains, our highest mountain is right at about 10,000 feet. And yet we have more snow on our higher mountains right now than Colorado has on its 14ers. And I was like, what is oh, the wow. deal with this? <laughs> I don't really know what that is. Yeah. So. Wow. Interesting. Well, yeah. And so you mentioned uh, a couple of those spots on city and county land where there are trails that e-bikes are allowed. So I'm curious to know, like, what what's the conversation about e-bikes like for Coda? Is there a growing demand for e-bike trail access or are people pretty much happy with, with what you've got right now? Well, that's a question, you know, that we wonder a lot about because, you know, we definitely hear from a lot of e-bikers who want more trail access. I mean, they definitely mm -hmm. have access to, we have thousands of miles of forest roads and, and then, you know, we do have some systems of trails that allow e-bikes, but, but definitely there is a steady stream of folks, you know, wanting greater access mm -hmm. who we don't really hear from because, it's the way the condition is now is the, the folks that might be nervous about e-bikes because, you know, they don't call us and say, hey, we like it how it is now, <laughs> you know, because there's no real reason for them to do that. They just post it anonymously online and, and yeah, lurk the Facebook comments because, yeah, we definitely see that. Right. So it's hard to it's hard to judge how many people are going to be concerned, you know, if if the situation does change, you know? And so that, right. that's kind of an ongoing just thing for me to think about, like, how would we measure that? Um, so we kind of know what we're up against. I mean, it's definitely been a journey just thinking about e-bikes. And I think as a lot of organizations, you know, the way they felt three years ago or five years ago about e-bikes is very different now, um, right. with yeah. them coming online and getting normalized and, you know, I've had a few opportunities to ride e-bikes on the trail systems that do allow them. And, you know, my own like personal journey has kind of been like, oh, hey, it's just me on an e-bike. I'm still going <laughs> to yeah. yield. I'm still going to be nice. Didn't turn you into like a, a really mean trail user. That's that's what I've heard. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, it's also, I've also ridden in mixed groups. Like some people are on e-bikes and some people are riding regular mm -hmm. bikes. And that is fascinating. And, and I am not, you know, like a race quality rider. And so we, I rode in a group where I was on a regular bike and some other folks were on e-bikes and I, I couldn't quite keep up, but I was not far behind. Right. So oh, it, wow. it yeah. 
yeah, my own personal journey has been understanding, you know, that when we talk about like top speeds of e-bikes, that doesn't necessarily mean like everyone's going 20 miles an hour all the time. Right. So, mm-hmm. Right. So that is one thing. And then, you know, Coda is a lot of voices, right? So I wouldn't say that Coda right now has like one position because there are a lot of voices. And a lot of people are at different places with their own um, thoughts about e-bikes. But, you know, to me, at the end of the day, e-bikes are a user group, just like equestrians are a user group, hunters are a user group. And like what, it, you know, if they feel they're looking for a particular recreational opportunity and they're not being provided that, then, you know, that's a question that land managers have to look at just the way they would right. any user group, right? So, mm-hmm. and I mean, not to go like deep into the policy, which if we went too deep into it, I would get lost too, but both BLM <laughs> and Forest Service have now put out, they've, they've made national policies that say local land managers can go through their environmental process and decide to open non-motorized trails. Mm-hmm. So that's something we've definitely seen an uptick since that forest service policy came out in the, our local forest service coming to us and saying like, Hey, we want to grapple with this. You know, we're the federal government. We're slow. It's not going to happen overnight, but like, <laughs> you know, and all summer we're going to be dealing with fires and not have capacity, but like, we want to, talk to you guys. We want to figure out ways to, you know, gauge where the community's at and like figure out some sort of path forward. So you're at least going to see a lot more stakeholders kind of engaging on this topic and, you know, what will actually happen in terms of trails changing designations is, mm-hmm. is really in the air, I think right now, but, but yeah. it's good to see the land managers really wanting to engage with groups like CODA on having those conversations and, and, you know, doing, doing what we need to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, like you say, it's their decision and the Forest Service is a huge entity and the BLM as well. And so I think the best that you can do, it sounds like, is is kind of advise and sort of help them work through that. But ultimately, it's it's up to them whether that happens or not and not not CODA. Yeah, but not to like totally pass the responsibility there. You know, I think our role is to kind of connect them with different users with all kinds of feelings on the subject, right? So that they can hear all sides of the story and we can, you know, analyze the trail network and kind of say, you know, where, because there's places in the trail network already where there's high conflict between, you know, either people on foot and equestrians and bikes or even like uphill, downhill bike traffic. And, Mm, you know, so maybe some of those places it's like, you know, maybe we want to just not add another thing to the mix here. And then there's other places where it's like, okay, you know, there's some one way trails, there's not as much density, like maybe this would make sense. So I think, you know, just the way e-bikes are a user group that wants things like folks that are uncomfortable with e-bikes are a user group that wants things. And so not to live in a world where everyone can be happy, but like maybe we can accommodate both of those groups. I don't know. So, <laughs> Yeah, definitely TBD and a lot of, a lot more work to be done. And like you said, it's not going to happen overnight, but it is good that people are having these conversations now and, and trying to figure out the best way so that everybody's happy in the end, which that's kind of the goal. So tell us, you mentioned what 150 miles of trails that are in various stages of planning that that coda is involved in what are some of the bigger projects or the ones that are like closer to being ready to build and and to open to bikes yes okay i'll tell you so there's a couple well i'll I'll tell you also some of the ones that we have under construction now because those are like those are great because those are like literally coming online soon but yeah in the planning stage the it's always awkward, right? Because something can always get derailed. Um, and we, we have had one of our planning projects that has been pretty derailed that I would love to talk about a little bit, but two that are seeming not super controversial or having a lot of, you know, sensitive resources like wildlife is we have a sledding hill at one of our, um, snow parks that's also like a good parking area in the summer, the Winoga that we're looking at putting some sort of short sessionable downhill trails on. Oh cool. So that 
that it, the planning process is not totally finished, so anything could still happen, but it's looking really good because they did do some environmental analysis on that area like previously, and it it looked good for trails. So we're hoping to see that come online, and Ooh. that'll be great because we have a lot of popular longer trails there, and then there's a little skills area in the parking lot. So mm. between those, like, sessionable downhill focus trails and the skills area and the longer sort of forest trails that emanate out of there. Winoga is just really set up to become a real mountain bike hub and you can camp in the Ooh. parking lot there in your RV. Oh, or your tent. And So that's going to, in a few years, I mean, it'll take a few years to get that online, but that's going to be a very cool area. And there's another one, a connector trail that right now it's just a place in the system where you have to ride a long section of road connecting the swampy snow park to the Dutchman snow park. We're going to get mm-hmm. a trail along that, which will be two ways, which oh, cool. will also be good because we have a trail called Flagline that is closed a good portion of the year for elk calving. And it, it kind of cre- creates sort of a hole in the system when you're trying to get back to town from those higher country trails. And this trail will provide... Mm-hmm an alternate route when Flagline is closed. So we're really looking forward to that. And just, you know, another trail that is going to be really fun and have more of that higher country feel to it. So those are two of the ones that are in planning, but looking pretty good for actually happening. Yeah. And the one that got sort of, that went sort of sideways, <laughs> which <laughs> worth talking about is is this area called lemon gulch so if you google lemon gulch you will be you will find a number of articles kind of basically it was a trail system that was proposed east of prineville and a small group of people became very concerned that this trail system was you know gonna ruin their way of life and you know completely change the town in a way that they were not desiring and yeah i remember reading about this yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is not, yeah, I, w- I would definitely encourage folks to look this up if you're at all interested in mountain bike advocacy, because, because the story is very interesting and it completely caught code off guard because the trail system was proposed through one of these coalitions, the Otoko Trails Collaborative. And, you know, this was a group of folks that had been meeting for years and had come up with a master plan that, included, you know, new hiking trails, new equestrian trails, and new bike trails in the Ochoco National Forest because the Ochocos don't have a ton of trail inventory and there were various user conflicts that they wanted to address by making some new trails and kind of separating users. And so there was a very robust process to make this master plan and it seemed like everyone was on board and aware. There had been some public meetings at the library to kind of let the public know that this was going on and have the public weigh in on locations. And then it all just went sideways when this group, you know, decided that it was not to their liking. And it wasn't like a big group either. Right. I mean, this is like a very rural area as I recall. And yeah, yeah, that it was just a few, but they were, they were very, very loud and got a lot of, a lot of attention for the project. It seems to be a small but very vocal group. And, and, you know, like a lot of these things, it really just seems to be, uh, you know, maybe similar to the e-bike issue. It seems to be based on just a lot of fear that the change that Mm. the system would bring is going to be a lot greater than in actuality it will be. Right. So, Mm. you know, it's like, oh, this road that you drive on to get to it is going to become like (laughs) a five lane highway with thousands of cars. You know, and it's just like that's (laughs) not how it's going to be right but but i i get yeah. it i primeville is sort of a you know a small pretty tight-knit more like cowboy community and they and they're just i i really think it's forces of change that are going on in central oregon in general that definitely the population here is growing really fast like housing is becoming very expensive and i honestly think it's those changes that the trail system is just something they can pin it on. And it's, it's, I almost feel sorry for them because do they really think that if they could just stop this trail system, they could stop all the changes that are happening in central Oregon. I mean, you know, that of course is not. It makes me wonder if, if we've oversold sort of how big of an impact mountain bike trails have on, you know, things like tourism, right? Like I I could see that if you're worried you're going to be, 
Bentonville. Well, I don't even know if Bentonville has a problem either. I mean, I, I think they're doing fine. They're not overrun with people, you know, all of a sudden in their town. You know, maybe it's more like a Crested Butte or something where, yeah, I mean, over many years, the real estate values have been driven up and it's obviously super, you know, tough to, to get a meal in a restaurant, you know, in the summertime there. But like, yeah, I wonder if we've oversold like how big of a, an impact mountain bike tourism is going to have versus the reality, which is, you know, people are there for a few hours. They, they come on the weekend. Generally, yeah, not not a lot of cars. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question because, I mean, I to me, trail systems and, you know, the reason certain areas are becoming, you know, why Bend is what it is and Crested Butte and Moab and you name it is because there's a really good quality of life there. Right. And mm, and so I'm, yeah. I'm not really sure what, I don't know if these folks are just looking for a different type of life and they, and they don't feel yeah. there's a place for that. But, you know, I mean, the Ojico National Forest is nearly a billion acres. It's like 850,000 oh. acres. So wow. a, a trail system on like 3000 acres is in my opinion, not too much to ask. I mean, they're federal public yeah. land. They're open to everyone. And, and there are a lot of mountain bikers in this area and a lot of mountain bikers locally in Primeville. There's a really strong mm. local culture of, you know, bikers who are very tight knit group of folks. And it, it doesn't seem like too much to ask. So in any <laughs> case, the environmental, the public comment period for the environmental review will be this fall, we think. Oh, so, okay. And, you know, anyone who is the citizen of the USA, it's your federal public land and you have a voice. And we would love for folks when that comment period happens, we're going to try to publicize it far and wide. And we would love mm. people to take two minutes to just submit a letter. We're going to have draft letters on our website to just say, hey, you know, this this trail system is a good thing and you should let it move forward so that it's very mm -hmm. clear when those letters come in that the greater number of folks support this trail system and versus being opposed to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That, that's a great reminder too about these. There's a lot of opportunities like that where we as mountain bikers can speak up and, and say that we're in support of projects and things. And I feel like we're one of the better groups at that, honestly, like showing up to meetings and, and we tend to be pretty vocal, but yeah, I would just encourage people for sure. When, when that opportunity arises to, yeah, take a couple minutes and, and write a letter and say, yeah, I support this. You know, like you said, I'm a citizen, taxpaying citizen, and you know, I want to enjoy the public lands that we have. And, and yeah, that's something we can do as mountain bikers to contribute to that and kind of yeah show show where our interests are yeah and that's just to like break down the mechanics of how to be an advocate in that way is like like a follow your local trail group on all their social media sign up for their newsletter like then you'll get those action alerts from them and then go to the web pages of your local land managers like the city the county the state and the federal governments, the national forests, they will all have ways to sign up for their alerts and they are required by law to have, you know, public notification of certain things. So you will get on their list to get notification when there's a chance for you to submit a comment on, you know, whatever relevant public lands things are going on in your, so, so definitely make sure you're on those lists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Yeah. Awesome. So let's talk about funding. How is CODA funded? You mentioned you've got about 2000 uh, dues paying members. Is our membership dues a big part or are there other funding sources that, that CODA relies on? Yeah. Well, so funding, funding has been very interesting for us the past few years, because of course, like I mentioned in 2020, we were all volunteer. We had no staff. So our budget has just now we have three staff. Two years later, we have mm. three staff. So our budget has basically doubled in the past three years. And so we're we're still sorting out like how we sustainably fund that. <laughs> so membership is probably about a third or a quarter of our budget. And then grants 
you know, that we go after that are project specific or probably a quarter to a third and then major gifts from individuals who are giving, you know, five or more figure donations uh, make up about probably about a third. And then, you know, we'll have some unusual things like we had a bequest in someone's estate at one year. So we'll have some things that kind of come in, in sort of a one-off way, um, Mm -hmm. like to fill in some of those gaps, but it is definitely funding is a struggle. And I, I really think I've been thinking about it cause you know, I'm, I'm also sit on the board of the Oregon mountain biking coalition, which is like a statewide coalition of groups like CODA, where we all sort of talk about similar issues. And, and then I am active in some other things, you know, kind of always looking at the broader landscape of trails funding and, I really think what has happened on a macro level is like mountain bike, mountain biking started as a sport, you know, not too long ago in the grand scheme of things. And mountain bikers have spent all this time advocating for trails. And now we're seeing that kind of get over this hump where we have a lot of trails and, you know, we have places, Bentonville, Moab, Sedona, Bend, Bellingham, you know, you can name them where the economy and and the, the culture is largely centered around mountain biking and the piece that we haven't filled in is like, now that we've created these real ride centers, how do we make sure that those areas are properly stewarded so that when you go, you know, the jumps aren't all just blown out and the trees haven't been cut out. And I think that is the next piece in this evolution that like all of the trail groups kind of need to solve is like how to keep, sustainable funding coming in to steward that resource. Cause mm. you know, to mountain bikers, to hikers, you're like, I'm walking this trail in order to go to this waterfall or this viewpoint or whatever. But for mountain biking, like it's the trail itself, you mm. know, and how it flows and how it's shaped. That's what we're there for. You know, we're, we love the scenery and riding through different types of forests, but if the trail itself is not in good condition, that really affects our experience. And so it's an, it's a lot of ongoing maintenance that is not sufficiently funded, not just at CODA, but across the board at this time. But I really hope to see that evolve, you know, in the next few years. Yeah. I mean, funding maintenance is definitely not, not sexy. That's not like the first thing, especially, I mean, for individuals, you're giving your money, you're thinking, oh, this is going to go to build a new trail. But, you know, the, the thing like, can you, you said grants are a big part of, of the funding. Are those, those are typically going toward trail projects. Am I right? Or, or can you use some of those to fund just your like operating expenses in terms of paying staff and that sort of thing? Cause it seems like that's the last thing that, that people want to fund, but it's, it's really the most necessary. Yep. And that is, that's another one of my like macro big picture things that I try to message whenever I get the chances. And and whenever I have a chance to talk to grant providers, you know, I try to send the message of like, I know what you guys are looking for is like a project that you can say, we built this kiosk or we built this trail mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. but investing in people, you know, th- those things have a one X return on investment. You built a mm-hmm. kiosk, right? Yeah. You did it. But like, if you invest in a person, a staff person, if you invest in training of volunteers, you know, like that money has a two or three X ROI Mm. because those people learn skills, they have bandwidth to do a number of things, you know, and that that can have a ripple effect out into the community and is is a less tangible resource than say a kiosk or a trail, but is a Mm -hmm. much bigger impact. You know, so if grant providers are looking to take dollars and turn them into impact, in my opinion, that should be by investing in people and training and not so, you know, and less thinking about just like run of the mill trail projects, you know? Yeah. So where, where I've had the opportunity, I work into my grant applications, you know, the, the first few cycles of maintenance and training. So it'll be like, all right, we're going to build this skills area and we're going to train volunteers to take care of it. Because if we don't, it'll be perfect for a month and then it'll just get hammered and it won't be great anymore, right? So, Yeah. And you're telling the grant, grant giver, like, we're not going to come back to you 
hopefully for more money because we need to fix up this trail. And, and, you know, meanwhile, you guys have your name on this trail and it looks like junk after a few years, you know, we're, yeah, you're investing in us like sustaining this and everything. I mean, that's a great pitch and I'm definitely sold. (laughs) Great. Well, good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so what is the biggest constraint or challenge that Coda faces in carrying out and growing the mission. You kind of mentioned some. I mean, is it is it funding? Is it volunteers? Is it some combination of that? Right now it's funding. We're really blessed with like a very active community and really active volunteers. Our volunteers logged almost 14,000 hours in 2021 wow. and we're on track to bust that ceiling and go even higher in 2022. So we have a lot of people showing up. I mean, it's like getting people assigned to different tasks and like prioritizing, you know, getting all that organized is kind of an ongoing thing, but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily like a hurdle that there's no clear path to getting over. It's just an ongoing thing of, you know, figuring out how to train and and leverage volunteers. But yeah, the funding is really the piece as I described that feels like, how are we going to do this? And, And so many clubs, so many organizations like CODA are, figuring that out too. So if anyone's listening and you have figured that out, please call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting because, you know, I've spoken with a lot of different executive directors at different trail groups and a lot of them are in the same boat where they've, you know, just hired full-time staff for the first time within the last like three to five years. Um, a lot of them same were like previously all volunteer. And yeah, I mean, it does sound like that a lot of groups like yours start to gain momentum when you have that, when you have people who can focus on the, the organization and the mission full time. And you haven't said it explicitly, but I imagine that a lot of your time and the rest of the staff's time is spent fundraising. So it's like you, you know, that's, that's just part of the job is you're there to get more money so that you can do more things and, you know, the idea is that that snowballs and yeah, it does seem to work. Yeah, it does. It's, it's very much the macro trend, you know, in our, in mountain biking right now. And I I would definitely say that, you know, as my personal approach to it is I hate thinking that there are clubs all over the States that are inventing the same wheel and going through all the same (laughs) growing pains. And so, you know, I am more than, if I have developed a resource or some tip for success, I will share it with you freely, no strings attached. (laughs) So I I definitely have people hit me up every now and then of like, what do you do about this? Or do you have a job description for an executive director? Like, Mm. yes, I do. Mm. And I would be happy to share it with your club free of charge. So, you know, I, I, I love to see that attitude among these groups because we are all making the same transitions to having staff and having to do more assertive fundraising and like, you know, we, we should help each other. I very much believe that. So for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that state level organization for mountain bike groups. And again, yeah, that's something we've seen in, in other States and it seems to be effective, a great way of sharing those sort of best practices and, and some more like regional specific issues and, and things that can be addressed at the state level versus like, you know, say all the way up at the national level, like with IMBA. Yeah. And just simple things like our statewide organization got a 20% discount for, on tools from a particular provider. And then we were able to say to all the clubs like, hey, we're going to do this big order and they're providing mm-hmm. us discount because we're doing a bigger order than the clubs could do alone. Like who need, you know, go on this website and pick out your tools and we'll get, you know, yeah. we'll organize like getting them delivered and all this stuff. And so just, just even simple things like that have been so nice to work together on. Yeah. That's awesome. So tell us what's next for Coda. What's next for Coda? Well, our 150 miles of trails, <laughs> that takes <laughs> up a lot of our time planning for yeah. those going out and flagging alignments and looking at wildlife issues and, you know, all of that. So that is next. Um, And then a big thing that we're trying to do is grow our volunteer capacity and skills to take care of our flow trails. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've had, you know, a lot of volunteers kind of doing, you know, brushing and drain cleaning and that kind of thing. But we really want to 
create a more highly skilled group of volunteers who are like maintaining jumps and, and berms and, you know, really Ooh, yeah. grow our capacity in that area. Cause those are the trail features that are just getting hammered and, and need a lot of love. So we're really looking at better ways to, to do that. Cool. Yeah. That seems like something that, that people would be really interested in, in learning how to do, how to do it the right way. And yeah, like you said, it's a very specialized skill and not something that, that people just kind of automatically know how to do. Yeah. Right. It takes definitely of like, if, you know, for folks that are just like, I'm going to come out for one afternoon a year, that, <laughs> that won't be that, but we do, we are lucky that we get volunteers who are just coming out very, very consistently. So I'm like, all right, we're training you to do this. You know? Yeah. That's <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah. It's fun. Cool. Well, Emmy, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us and, and tell us about Coda and the writing in Bend. And yeah, we definitely look forward to hearing about the ongoing trail projects and, and what you're able to do there. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Well, you can learn more about Coda and find out how you can support them as well on the website, codamtv.com. And we'll have a link to that in the description. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.